Welcome to See the Change podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Ayala, Communications Director at Sea Change Initiative. This is a space to bring together community builders and change makers to hear the stories and inspire them to take action for social change. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe and connect with us online. In today's episode, you'll hear from Indigenous filmmaker Morgan Seta. She talks about her start in film and her turning point from Hollywood aspirations to Indigenous storytelling. We also talk about her online advocacy for Yellowknife Dene in holding the federal government accountable for reconciliation for the toxic legacy of Giant Mine. Let's dive in. My name is Morgan Seta. I currently live in Vancouver, BC, but I grew up in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories of Canada, located on Chief Draghi's territory. I am a proud member of the Yellowknife Zene First Nation and Indigenous community in the area. And that's pretty much been my cultural identity for the past couple of years. I've been exploring, reconnecting to my community and just being on a journey of individual self identity and resurgence. So that's pretty much really been the focus personally and professionally in the past couple of years on my end. When you talk about resurgence and taking that on as an individual, can you tell me a bit about what your connection was to your culture growing up and maybe how that changed over time? Yeah. um, When I was young, I was very much not interested in learning about my culture. I was really interested in Hollywood. I loved film and television when I was a kid. I was obsessed with Disney stars and the beauty standards, being a young, thin, blonde girl. So I was really ashamed partially to be Indigenous and that that stuck with me far too long. Um, It was almost in college when I kind of felt specifically being a part of such a colonial institution that is college, I kind of felt like I needed to insert my identity, like just to show people oh, by the way, my, my day-to-day life is just as beautiful or just kind of making that connection between my like resurgence and also bringing to light like what, like what beautiful and just what beauty there is in being Indigenous that I don't, I no longer have to be ashamed of that. Honestly, it's just this additional colonial mindset that led me to being ashamed of being Indigenous. In your filmmaking, when you were first interested in that, you mentioned that you were really into film and Hollywood growing up. At what point did you feel it was right to bring your Indigenous perspective to your filmmaking? Did you think you were going to do quote unquote, Hollywood type of films when you first started? 100%. When I enrolled in film school, I had actually just come back from my 21st birthday in LA and I had had such like a fun time. I made friends 
um, which was crazy. So I was like obsessed with, I'm going to move to LA one day and this is the path that I'm meant to be on. But when I was in film school, I enrolled in 2015 and halfway through the election started really taking a different turn than we, not all of us, but a lot of a large population of us had originally um, anticipated. So I kind of rethought even like ever moving to the US. I would still love to live in anywhere, like just disregard colonial borders, but specifically just somewhere that I could potentially work on a exciting film project. I was also in the midst of college, turning my assignments more towards indigenous subject matter. And I was feeling really rewarded with what I was producing. And the reaction I was also getting from classmates and professors. So it was kind of at the same time. So at that, I decided this is what I was truly meant to do. I was, I was meant to be this lens, this, this storyteller for my community or for an indigenous perspective. And it was really during college that I was like, I shifted kind of my perspective of what I want to do in, in filmmaking. That's awesome. I'm really happy to hear that you had a positive response from your classmates and and your professors during that experience. Do you, do you ever feel that it's an obstacle to have this focus when you're working in this career of filmmaking? It definitely can be an obstacle. It it's, there's almost this, you have to educate some someone with this content that you make. It, it can't be just for consumption. There has to be some sort of educational purpose because these people, most people, most of the general population aren't aware of some of the really complex issues that exist within Indigenous communities and from an Indigenous perspective. So when you do show films or photography or just any exhibition about any subject matter, you're going to need to have to explain something or, and that can be emotionally taxing. It's definitely somewhat of an obstacle, but it's not, it's not specific to Indigenous media. I would say like a lot of things have to be handled very carefully and it's, it, it, it can be a little bit of an obstacle, but hopefully if we can just like change a couple of perspectives and educate some people, then um, barriers are, are easily, easily broken. Yeah, for sure. Um, And, you know, when we spoke last time, you mentioned that the history of giant mind, which is one of the issues that has been very much centered on your online platform was part of the motivation to get into filmmaking or expand your filmmaking to Indigenous issues. How did you make that connection? Yeah, I feel like, like a lot of Indigenous youth of this generation, I had sought post-secondary as some sort of solution or answer 
to the problems that some like somewhat plague our communities. But I didn't find myself in college. A colonial institution made me more depressed and unsure than ever before. So when I started making films about my life experiences and traditional knowledge as a Dene person, it all started to click. And when I started to specifically look more into Giant Mind, there was there was films that were being produced at the time and reports and media articles were coming out. And it really, it, it was this natural, a natural connection in um, my filmmaking and also knowledge on issues that plague specifically my community. I knew that there was a way that I could use both to uplift both my filmmaking and the issue that is Giant Mine. Giant Mine, I would say, is not commonly known. I'd like to think that I'm aware of things and keep up on on current issues. Um, but when I discovered your platform, this was something that was fairly unknown to me. So can you give us some context on why it's an issue today and maybe a brief history of it? Sure. So Giant Mine was a gold mine that was in operation from 1948 to 2004. It was abandoned and taken over by Aboriginal Affairs in 2005. In its its operation, it has emitted over 237,000 tons of arsenic trioxide dust, which is currently stored underground. The remediation plan is costing $900 million and will cost $2 million a year every year forever because arsenic, there is no way to decompose it. There's no safe way to transport it from another site, from this site to another site. And essentially the Yellow Knives Dene and our communities are going to be forced to live with this contaminated arsenic and our contaminated lands forever for the rest of eternity. And the Canadian government was fully responsible and knowledgeable in how deadly and poisonous the emissions were during the operations. And we are now calling for compensation an apology and a seat at the remediation table. The petition ended in March. There was a demonstration in December to call for a call to action. And we are now currently waiting for the government of Canada's response. They have 45 days to respond to the petition. Okay. And when is that deadline? It's in June. So we, we should expect an apology or at least a negotiating table by June. Okay. And expanding on the arsenic and the the toxicity that was produced during the operation of the mine, how does that impact the day-to-day health of your community? So we recently did a arsenic study and it started in 2017 and the, the findings were just published this past year. And it shows elevated arsenic levels in the children in and around the Yellowknife and Dedandilo communities. But there's also, it's important to note that there's, that arsenic, it dilutes very quickly and it is very easily, very fastly metabolized by the body. And there's very inadequate results that are available from past surveys. And if you look into the reporting that is available on the giantmindmonster.ca report, 
it goes into full detail on just how much the Canadian government covered up how toxic and how deadly it is. It it's it's quite shocking. Yeah, I can imagine. And just a side note that we'll be linking to all of those resources in the show description. In terms of further impacts, so your community, not just incorporating people, but also your environment and wildlife um, and traditional lands. Uh, what's the impact of the arsenic on the environment? It's total, complete impact. The giant mine site has completely altered the traditional Dene way of life. The site itself has ruined traditional um, traditional trap lines and ancestral trails that we have used since time immemorial. The settlement of Yellowknife as a result of Giant Mine resulted in a loss of wildlife in the areas that are now Great Bear Lake and the Yellowknife Airport and Long Lake. There used to be traditional, um, traditional caribou and moose hunts in the area that no longer happens due to urbanization and it's it's incredibly devastating for everything from harvesting to gathering to just water use has been affected on a day-to-day basis for the Yellowknife Zene and that also that that has a great effect on just the health and wellness of our communities. We're no longer able to pass down traditional knowledge in the way that we once were able to. The areas that we were sectioned to at the end of Latham Island due to the government wanting to place us in an area of convenience, but also outside of the Yellowknife area, they were able to deliver us what they believed to be fair use of water through charging municipal services and we're no longer able to just step outside and shoot any birds or gather any berries right that was actually going to be what I was going to ask next was there concern that because your community is unable to kind of carry out these traditional practices, the concern of passing it on to to next generations and how to preserve that traditional knowledge. You've been very active with your activism online. You've been you promoted the petition very heavily and you've garnered quite a bit of a following as well to to share that message. Um, and, and you were talking about the the I want to say demands, but it's, it's sounds kind of strong but the the objective of the petition with compensation and having a seat at the the table what do you feel would be the ideal outcome so when I started um spreading awareness about the petition and really pushing the petition out to my moderate tiktok following it was really to get the minimum signature requirement. That's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to show a message to the Canadian government that we can get the certain petition signature requirement in a certain amount of time. 
And as it started to grow and we started to get more traction specifically on the issue and people wanted to do more than sign the petition and people wanted were reaching out with what else they could do, I was really, I was, I was very shocked, but I also, I had to kind of adjust what my out, my desired outcome was. So my desired outcome specifically as the, as the petition got over 500 and I started to see it kind of snowballing into like this greater effect is I really wanted the Canadian government to kind of take responsibility and also just kind of acknowledge their role in the giant mine situation and just the sheer amount of cover-ups and um, bureaucratic roadblocks that were detrimental to the health and wellness of Yellowknife Zene communities. So mainly I've just been trying to just spread awareness and mostly bring this specific topic to a national, even a national stage. If more people are talking about it, then we can hopefully put pressure on the federal government in responding to this appropriately. We can't have a repeat of past apologies because we know they were inadequate. Any Anyone from any Indigenous community will scoff at the Conservatives' apology in the mid-2000s. And anyone who will, anyone will mention Trudeau's promise for clean water that was broken last month. We can't have empty promises. It has to be appropriately acknowledged. And I feel like it's a, there's almost it's almost able to the mine is closed that's not that's not an issue that is we're not asking for the mine to be closed so there shouldn't be mining lobbyists who are calling for the Yellowknife's Dene to end their demonstration there's nothing like that I I feel like because of this unique situation we can hold the government accountable. And that is my number one desired outcome. You mentioned that your initial objective was to get the minimum signatures. uh, And that's why you started promoting on social media. Things didn't go as expected. They actually became stronger. And I'm sure that during that process, you must have encountered people that are not supportive. Have there been particular videos of yours that have garnered a bit like more negative attention? Yeah. So a lot of my mining education, like a lot of the educational videos specifically with mining facts or anything that revolves in just the historical facts that surround Giant Mine, those ones are the ones that always get put onto the wrong side of TikTok, onto the mining apologists pages. Um, I think a lot of the ignorance I've had to deal with are people who haven't done research into the ongoing situation regarding the Yellowknife Zeni and the giant mine. Most of the commenters are even unaware that this mine site isn't even actively producing gold and was abandoned over 15 years ago. And I think it's important to note that what may have been temporarily beneficial at the time clearly is no longer beneficial in any aspect 
The costs of remediation are far greater than the value of gold this mine ever produced. And our nation never profited a penny from its operations. In fact, Giant Mine led to the colonization of our communities, which has done direct harm to the Yonazene. I, I, I just don't even engage with a lot of the people who leave comments on my page because I don't want to, one, give them a platform, which they're obviously looking for. A lot of the people who leave comments are not creators themselves. They're just people who watch TikTok content. Um, a large percentage of TikTok accounts have never created a video themselves. And um, those are the ones who love to leave comments. So I I just don't, I don't acknowledge hate, but it's, it's really hard sometimes when these issues are so personal to not give in sometimes. Like I know for personally, I have responded to a couple of people who clearly don't know the situation and I felt like I needed to engage them but it's, it's, it's not constructive. You're not going to convince them anything. So I just hope that with some of my educational content already that I've maybe opened the eyes of someone who didn't have a political standpoint when it comes to um, a mine, just any mine. Right. And on, on the flip side, you've also made a lot of connections within Canada and internationally from communities that have gone through something similar or have a similar story with mining. Um, how did that make you feel? Yeah, I think it's, it's really enlightening for me and a lot of like other Indigenous and even a lot of Canadians to continually learn about environmental injustices it puts into perspective um, the history of Canada and just what colonial governments will do to indigenous or marginalized communities across the world and how we're not unique. We're not this true and free nation that the federal government and a lot of its citizens love to believe that we are. A lot of these environmental racism and just issues that plague Indigenous or marginalized communities are done at the hands of federal, state, territorial governments, and a lot of this, a lot of the narratives that they love to force onto national, international medias is something that is being challenged recently and it's it's really it's it's really enlightening to be able to speak up and not just immediately get shut down because other people have spoken up about similar situations in their own nation and they can relate on that on that level <laughs>